Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Today, Chapter 7, 8, and 9. And now, Chapter 7. I go to sea in the Brig Covenant of Dysart. I came to myself in darkness and great pain, bound hand and foot, and deafened by many unfamiliar noises. There sounded in my ears a roaring of water as of a huge mill dam, the thrashing of heavy sprays, the thundering of the sails, and the shrill cries of seamen. The whole world now heaved giddily up, and now rushed giddily downward, and so sick and hurt was I in body, and my mind so much confounded, that it took me a long while, chasing my thoughts up and down, and ever stunned again by a fresh stab of pain, to realize that I must be lying somewhere bound in the belly of that unlucky ship, and that the wind must have strengthened to a gale. With the clear perception of my plight, there fell upon me a blackness of despair, a horror of remorse at my own folly, and a passion of anger at my uncle, that once more bereft me of my senses. When I returned again to life, the same uproar, the same confused and violent movements, shook and deafened me, and presently, to my other pains and distresses, there was added the sickness of an unused landsman on the sea. In that time of my adventurous youth, I suffered many hardships, but none that was so crushing to my mind and body, or lit by so few hopes as these first hours aboard the brig. I heard a gunfire, and supposed the storm had proved too strong for us, and we were firing signals of distress. The thought of deliverance, even by death in the deep sea, was welcome to me. Yet it was no such matter, but, as I was afterwards told, a common habit of the captain's, which I here set down to show that even the worst man may have his kindlier side. We were then passing, it appeared, within some miles of Dysart, where the brig was built, and where old Mrs. Hoseason, the captain's mother, had come some years before to live, and whether outward or inward bound, the covenant was never suffered to go by that place by day without a gun fired and colors shone. I had no measure of time, day and night were alike in that ill-smelling cavern of the ship's bowels where I lay, and the misery of my situation drew out the hours to double. How long, therefore, I lay waiting to hear the ship split upon some rock, or to feel her reel head foremost into the depths of the sea, I have not the means of computation. But sleep at length stole from me the consciousness of sorrow. I was awakened by the light of a hand-lantern shining in my face. A small man of about thirty, with green eyes and a tangle of fair hair, stood looking down at me. "'Well,' said he, "'how goes it?' I answered by a sob, and my visitor then felt my pulse and temples, and set himself to wash and dress the wound upon my scalp. "'Aye,' said he, "'a sore don't. What, man? Cheer up. The word's not done. You made a bad start of it, but you'll make a better. Have you had any meat?' I said I could not look at it, and thereupon he gave me some brandy and water and a tin pannikin, and left me once more to myself.' The next he came to see me, I was lying betwixt sleep and waking, my eyes wide open in the darkness, the sickness quite departed, but succeeded by a horrid giddiness in swimming that was almost worse to bear. I ached, besides, in every limb, and the cords that bound me seemed to be of fire. The smell of the hole in which I lay seemed to have become a part of me, and during the long interval since his last visit I had suffered tortures of fear. Now from the scurrying of the ship's rats, 
that sometimes pattered on my very face, and now from the dismal imaginings that haunt the bed of fever. The glimmer of the lantern, as the trap opened, shone in like the heaven's sunlight, and though it only showed me the strong, dark beams of the ship that was my prison, I could have cried aloud for gladness. The man with the green eyes was the first to descend the ladder, and I noticed that he came somewhat unsteadily. He was followed by the captain. Neither said a word, but the first set to and examined me, and dressed my wound as before, while Hoseason looked at me in my face with an odd, black look. "'Now, sir, you see for yourself,' said the first. "'A high fever, no appetite, no light, no meat. You see for yourself what that means.' "'I am no conjurer, Mr. Riach.' "'said the captain. "'Give me leave, sir,' said Riach. "'You have a good head upon your shoulders "'and a good Scotch tongue to ask with, "'but I will leave you no manner of excuse. "'I want that boy taken out of this hole "'and put in the foxhole. "'What ye may want, sir, "'is a matter of concern to nobody but yourself,' "'returned the captain. "'But I can tell you that which is to be. "'Here he is, and here he shall bide.' "'Admitting that you have been paid in a proportion,' said the other, "'I will crave leave humbly to say that I have not. "'Paid I am, and none too much, "'to be the second officer of this old tub, "'and you can very well if I do my best to earn it. "'But I was paid for nothing more.' "'If ye could hold back your hand from the tin pan, Mr. Riach, "'I would have no complaint to make of ye,' returned the skipper. "'And instead of asking riddles, "'I make bold to say that you would keep your breath to cool your porridge.' "'We'll be required on deck,' he added, in a sharper note, and set one foot upon the ladder. But Mr. Riach caught him by the sleeve. "'Admitting that you've been paid to do a murder?' he began. Hoseason turned upon him with a flash. "'What's that?' he cried. "'What kind of talk is that?' "'It seems it's the talk that you can understand,' said Mr. Riach, looking him steadily in the face. "'Mr. Riach, I've sailed with you three cruises.' "'replied the captain. "'In all that time, sir, "'you would have learned to know me. "'I'm a stiff man and a dour man, "'but for what you say to now, "'fie, fie, "'it comes from a bad heart "'and a black conscience. "'If ye say the lad will die.' "'Aye, Willie,' "'said Mr. Riach. "'Well, sir, "'is that not enough?' "'said Hoseason. "'Flit him where you please.' "'Thereupon the captain "'ascended the ladder.' and I, who had lain silent throughout this strange conversation, beheld Mr. Riach turn after him and bow as low to his knees in what was plainly a spirit of derision. Even in my then state of sickness I perceived two things, that the mate was touched with liquor, as the captain hinted, and that, drunk or sober, he was like to prove a valuable friend. Five minutes afterwards my bonds were cut, I was hoisted on a man's back, carried up to the vauxhall, "'and laid in a bunk on some sea blankets, "'where the first thing that I did was to lose my senses. "'It was a blessed thing indeed to open my eyes again upon the daylight, "'and to find myself in the society of men. "'The foxhole was a roomy place enough set all about with berths, "'in which the men of the watch below were seated smoking or lying down asleep. "'The day being calm and the wind fair, the scuttle was open, "'and not only the good daylight, but from time to time, as the ship rolled, "'a dusty beam of sunlight shone in, "'and dazzled and delighted me. "'I had no sooner moved, moreover, "'than one of the men brought me a drink "'of something healing which Mr. Riach had prepared, "'and bade me lie still, "'and I should soon be well again. 
"'There were no bones broken,' he explained. "'A cloud on your head was nothing, man,' said he. "'It was me that gave it to you.' "'Here I lay for the space of many days a close prisoner, "'and not only got my health again, but came to know my companions. "'They were a rough lot indeed, as sailors mostly are, "'being men rooted out of all the kindly parts of life "'and condemned to toss together on the rough seas, "'with masters no less cruel. "'There were some among them that had sailed with the pirates "'and seen things it would be a shame even to speak of. "'Some were men that had run from the king's ships "'and went with a halter round their necks, "'of which they made no secret.' and all, as the saying goes, were at a word and a blow with their best friends. Yet I had not been many days shut up with them before I began to be ashamed of my first judgment, when I had drawn away from them at the fairy pier, as though they had been unclean beasts. No class of man is altogether bad, but each has its own faults and virtues, and these shipmates of mine were no exception to the rule. Rough they were, sure enough, and bad, I suppose, but they had many virtues as well. They were kind when it occurred to them, simple even beyond the simplicity of a country lad like me, and had some glimmerings of honesty. There was one man, of maybe forty, that would sit on my berth side for hours and tell me of his wife and child. He was a fisher that had lost his boat, and thus had been driven to the deep sea voyaging. Well, it is years ago now, but I've never forgotten him. His wife, who was young by him, as he often told me, "'waited in vain to see her man return. "'He would never again make the fire for her in the morning, "'nor yet keep the balm when she was sick. "'Indeed, many of these poor fellows, as the event proved, "'were upon their last cruise. "'The deep seas and cannibal fish received them, "'and it is a thankless business to speak ill of the dead. "'Among other good deeds that they did, "'they returned my money, which had been shared among them, "'and though it was about a third short, "'I was very glad to get it, "'and hoped great good from it in the land I was going to. "'The ship was bound for the Carolinas, "'and you must not suppose that I was going to that place "'merely as an exile. "'The trade was even then much depressed since that, "'and with the rebellion of the colonies "'and the formation of the United States, "'it has, of course, come to an end. "'But in those days of my youth, "'white men were still sold into slavery on the plantations, "'and that was the destiny to which my wicked uncle had condemned me. "'The cabin boy Ransom, from whom I had first heard of these atrocities, came in at times from the roundhouse, where he birthed and served, now nursing a bruised limb in silent agony, now raving against the cruelty of Mr. Schwann. It made my heart bleed, but the men had a great respect for the chief mate, who was, as they said, the only seaman of the whole jing-bang, and not such a bad man when he was sober. Indeed, I found there was a strange peculiarity about our two mates, that Mr. Riach was sudden, "'unkind and harsh when he was sober, "'and Mr. Shuon would not hurt a fly "'except when he was drinking. "'I asked about the captain, "'but I was told drink made no difference "'upon that man of iron. "'I did my best in the small time allowed me "'to make something like a man, "'or rather I should say, something like a boy, "'of the poor creature Ransom. "'But his mind was scarce truly human. "'He could remember nothing of the time "'before he came to sea, "'only that his father had made clocks "'and had a starling in the parlor which could whistle the North Country, all else had been blotted out in these years of hardship and cruelties. He had a strange notion of the dry land, picked up from sailors' stories, that it was a place where lads were put to some kind of slavery called a trade, and where apprentices were continually lashed and clapped into foul prisons. In a town, he thought every second person a decoy, and every third house a place in which seamen would be drugged and murdered. 
to be sure. I would tell him how kindly I myself had been used upon that dry land he was so much afraid of, and how well fed and carefully taught by both my friends and my parents. And if he had been recently hurt, he would weep bitterly and swear to run away. But if he was in his usual crack-brain humor, or still more, if he had had a glass of spirits in the roundhouse, he would deride the notion. It was Mr. Riosh, heaven forgive him, who gave the boy drink, and it was doubtless kindly meant, but besides that it was a ruin to his health. It was the pitifulest thing in life to see this unhappy, unfriended creature staggering, and dancing, and talking he knew not what. Some of the men laughed, but not all. Others would grow as black as thunder, thinking perhaps of their own childhood or their own children, and bid him stop that nonsense, and think what he was doing. As for me, I felt ashamed to look at him, and the poor child still comes about me in my dreams. All this time, you should know, the covenant was meeting continual headwinds and tumbling up and down against head seas, so that the scuttle was almost constantly shut, and the foxhole lighted only by a swinging lantern on a beam. There was constant labor for all hands. The sails had to be made and shortened every hour. The strain told on the men's temper. There was a growl of quarreling all day, long from birth to birth, and as I was never allowed to set my foot on deck, you could picture to yourselves how, how weary of my life I grew to be, and how impatient for a change. And a change I was to get, as you shall hear, but I must first tell of a conversation I had with Mr. Riosh, which put a little heart in me to bear my troubles. Getting him in a favorable stage of drink, for indeed he never looked near me when he was sober, I pledged him to secrecy, and told him my whole story. He declared it was like a ballad, that he would do his best to help me, that I should have paper, pen, and ink, and write one line to Mr. Campbell, and another to Mr. Rankiller, and that if I had told the truth, ten to one he would be able, with their help, to pull me through and set me in my rights. And in the meantime, says he, keep your heart up. You're not the only one, I'll tell you that. There's many a man hoeing tobacco overseas that should be mounting his horse at his own door at home. Many and many, and life is all of aurorium at the best. Look at me. I'm a laird's son, and more than half a doctor. And here I am. Man Jack the hoe season. I thought it would be civil to ask him for his story. He whistled loud. Never had one, said he. I like fun, that's all. And he skipped out of the foxhole. We'll return with Chapter 8 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson right after this sponsor message. And now we return to Chapter 8, The Roundhouse. One night, about eleven o'clock, a man of Mr. Riach's watch, and that watch was on deck, came below for his jacket, and instantly there began to go a whisper about the foxhole that Shawan had done for him at last. There was no need of a name. We all know who was meant, but we had scarce time to get the idea rightly in our heads, and far less to speak of it, when the scuttle was again flung open, and Captain Hoseason came down the ladder. He looked sharply round the bunks in the tossing light of the lantern, and then, walking straight up to me, he addressed me, to my surprise, in tones of kindness. "'My man,' said he, "'we want you to serve in the roundhouse. You and Ransom are to change berths. Run away aft with you.' Even as he spoke, two seamen appeared in the scuttle, carrying Ransom in their arms, and the ship at that moment giving a great sheer into the sea, and the lantern swinging, the light fell direct on the boy's face. It was as white as wax, 
"'and had a look upon it like a dreadful smile. "'The blood in me ran cold, "'and I drew in my breath as if I'd been struck. "'Run away aft! Run away aft with you!' "'cried Hoseason. "'And at that I brushed by the sailors and the boy, "'who neither spoke nor moved, "'and ran up the ladder on deck. "'The brig was shearing swiftly and giddily "'through a long cresting swell. "'She was on the starboard tack, "'and on the left hand, "'under the arched foot of the foresail, "'I could see the sunset still quite bright. "'This, at such an hour of the night, "'surprised me greatly, "'but I was too ignorant to draw the true conclusion "'that we were going north about round Scotland, "'and we were now on the high sea "'between the Orkney and Shetland Islands, "'having avoided the dangerous currents "'of the Pentland Firth. "'For my part, who had been so long shut in the dark "'and knew nothing of headwinds, "'I thought we might be halfway or more "'across the Atlantic. "'And indeed... Beyond that I wondered a little at the lateness of the sunset light. I gave no heed to it, and pushed on across the decks, running between the seas, catching at ropes, and only saved from going overboard by one of the hands on deck, who had been always kind to me. The roundhouse, for which I was bound, and where I was now to sleep and serve, stood some six feet above the decks, and considering the size of the brig, was of good dimensions. Inside were a fixed table and bench, and two berths, one for the captain "'and the other for the two mates, turn and turn about. "'It was all fitted with lockers from top to bottom, "'so as to store away the officers' belongings "'at a part of the ship's stores. "'There was a second storeroom underneath, "'which you entered by a hatchway in the middle of the deck. "'Indeed, all the best of the meat and drink "'and the whole of the powder were collected in this place, "'and all the firearms, except the two pieces of brass ordnance, "'were set in a rack in the aftermost wall of the roundhouse. "'The most of the cutlasses were in another place.' A small window with a shutter on each side and a skylight in the roof gave it light by day, and after dark there was a lamp always burning. It was burning when I entered, not brightly, but enough to show Mr. Schwann sitting at a table with the brandy bottle and a tin pannikin in front of him. He was a tall man, strongly made and very black, and he stared before him on the table like one stupid. He took no notice of my coming in, nor did he move when the captain followed and leant on the berth beside me. "'looking darkly at the mate. "'I stood in great fear of Hoseason "'and had my reasons for it. "'But something told me I need not be afraid of him just then, "'and I whispered in his ear, "'How is he?' "'He shook his head like one that does not know "'and does not wish to think, "'and his face was very stern. "'Presently Mr. Riosch came in. "'He gave the captain a glance that meant the boy was dead "'as plain as speaking, "'and took his place like the rest of us, "'so that we all three stood without a word.' "'staring down at Mr. Schwann, "'and Mr. Schwann, on his side, "'sat without a word, "'looking hard upon the table. "'All of a sudden he put his hand out "'to take the bottle, "'and at that Mr. Riosch started forward "'and caught it away from him, "'rather by surprise than violence, "'crying out with an oath "'that there had been too much of this work altogether, "'and that a judgment would fall upon the ship. "'And as he spoke, "'the weather sliding doors standing open, "'he tossed the bottle into the sea.' Mr. Schwann was on his feet in a trice. He still looked dazed, but he meant murder. Aye, and would have done it for the second time that night, had not the captain stepped in between him and his victim. Sit down, roars the captain. You satin swine. Do you know what you've done? You've murdered the boy. Mr. Schwann seemed to understand, for he sat down again and put up his hand to his brow. Well, he said, he brought me a dirty pannikin. At that word, 
The captain and I and Mr. Riosh all looked at each other for a second with a kind of frightened look, and then Hoseason walked up to his chief officer, took him by the shoulder, led him across to his bunk, and bade him lie down and go to sleep, as you might speak to a bad child. The murderer cried a little, but he took off his sea-boots and obeyed. "'Ah!' cried Mr. Riosh, with a dreadful voice. "'You should have interfered long since. It's too late now.' "'Mr. Riosh,' said the captain, "'this night's work must never be kent in Dysart. "'The boy went overboard. That's what the story is. "'And I would give five pounds out of my pocket it was true.' "'He turned to the table. "'What made you throw the good bottle away?' he added. "'There was no sense in that, sir.' "'Here, David, throw me another. "'They're in the bottom locker.' "'And he tossed me a key. "'You'll need a glass yourself, sir,' he added to Riosh. "'It was an ugly thing to see.' "'So the pair sat down and hobnobbed, "'and while they did so, "'the murderer who had been lying and whimpering in his berth "'raised himself upon his elbow "'and looked at them and at me. "'That was the first night of my new duties, "'and in the course of the next day "'I had got well into the run of them.' I had to serve at the meals which the captain took at regular hours, sitting down with the officer who was off duty. All the day through I'd be running with the dram to one or the other of my three masters, and at night I slept on a blanket thrown on the deck boards at the aftermost end of the roundhouse, and right in the draft of the two doors. It was a hard and cold bed, nor was I suffered to sleep without interruption, for someone would always be coming in from the deck to get a dram, and when a fresh watch was to be set, two and sometimes all three would sit down and brew a bowl together. How they kept their health, I know not, any more than how I kept my own. And yet, in other ways, it was an easy service. There was no cloth to lay. The meals were either of oatmeal porridge or salt junk, except twice a week, when there was duff. And though I was clumsy enough, and, not being firm on my sea legs, sometimes fell with what I was bringing them, both Mr. Riosh and the captain were singularly patient. I could not but fancy they were making up leeway with their consciences, and that they would scarce have been so good with me if they had not been worse with Ransom. As for Mr. Schwann, the drink or his crime, or the two together, had certainly troubled his mind. I cannot say I ever saw him in his proper wits. He never grew used to my being there. He stared at me continually, sometimes, I thought, with terror, and more than once drew back from my hand when I was serving him. I was pretty sure from the first that he had no clear mind of what he had done, and on my second day in the roundhouse I had the proof of it. We were alone, and he had been staring at me a long time, when all at once up he got, as pale as death, and came close up to me, to my great terror. But I had no cause to be afraid of him, as it turned out. "'You were not here before?' he asked. "'No, sir.' "'There was another boy?' he asked again. And when I had answered him, "'Ah!' says he. I'd thought that, and went and sat down, without another word except a call for brandy. You may think it strange, but for all the horror I had, I was still sorry for him. He was a married man with a wife in Leith, but whether or no he had a family, I had now forgotten. I hope to God he didn't. Altogether it was no very hard life for the time it lasted, which, as you are to hear, was not long. I was as well fed as the best of them, even their pickles, which were a great dainty, I was allowed to share of, and I liked I might have drunk from morning to night, like Mr. Schwann. I had company, too, and good company of its sort, 
Mr. Riosh, who had been to the college, spoke to me like a friend when he was not sulking, and told me many curious things, and some that were informing. And even the captain, though he kept me at the stick's end the most part of the time, would sometimes unbuckle a bit and tell me of the fine countries he had visited. The shadow of poor Ransom, to be sure, lay on all four of us, and on me and Mr. Schwann in particular, most heavily. And then I had another trouble of my own. Here I was, doing dirty work for three men that I looked down upon, and one of whom, at least, should have hung upon a gallows. That was for the present. And as for the future, I could only see myself slaving alongside of negroes in the tobacco fields. Mr. Riosh, perhaps from caution, would never suffer me to say another word about my story. The captain, whom I tried to approach, rebuffed me like a dog and would not hear a word. And as the days came and went, my heart sank lower and lower, till I was even glad of the work which kept me from thinking. We'll return with Chapter 9, right after this sponsor message. And now Chapter 9, The Man with the Belt of Gold. More than a week went by, in which the ill luck that had hitherto pursued the covenant upon this voyage grew yet more strongly marked. Some days she made a little way, others she was driven actually back. At last we were beaten so far to the south that we tossed and tacked to and fro the whole of the ninth day, within sight of Cape Wrath and the wild rocky coast on either hand of it. There followed on that a council of the officers, and some decision which I did not rightly understand, seeing only the result that we had made a fair wind of a foul one, and were running south. The tenth afternoon there was a falling swell and a thick, wet, white fog that hid one end of the brig from the other. All afternoon, when I went on deck, I saw men and officers listening hard over the bulwarks, for breakers, they said, and though I did not so much as understand the word, I felt danger in the air, and was excited. Maybe about ten at night, I was serving Mr. Riosh and the captain at their supper, when the ship struck something with a great sound, and we heard voices singing out. My two masters leaped to their feet. She struck, said Mr. Riosh. No, sir, said the captain. We've only run a boat down. And they hurried out. The captain was in the right of it. We had run down a boat in the fog, and she had parted in the midst and gone to the bottom with all her crew but one. This man, as I heard afterwards, had been sitting in the stern as a passenger, while the rest were on the benches rowing. At the moment of the blow... The stern had been thrown into the air, and the man, having his hands free, and for all he was encumbered with a frieze overcoat that came below his knees, had leaped up and caught hold of the brig's bowsprit. It showed he had luck and much agility and unusual strength, that he should have thus saved himself from such a pass. And yet, when the captain brought him into the roundhouse, and I set eyes upon him for the first time, he looked as cool as I did. He was smallish in stature, but well set and as nimble as a goat, his face was of a good open expression, but sunburnt very dark, and heavily freckled and pitted with the smallpox. His eyes were unusually light and had a kind of dancing madness in them that was both engaging and alarming, and when he took off his greatcoat, he laid a pair of fine silver-mounted pistols on the table, and I saw that he was belted with a great sword. His manners, besides, were elegant, and he pledged the captain handsomely. Altogether I thought of him, at the first sight, that here was a man I'd rather call my friend than my enemy." The captain, too, was taking his observations, but rather of the man's clothes than his person. And to be sure, as soon as he had taken off the greatcoat, he showed forth mighty fine for the roundhouse of a merchant brig, having a hat with feathers, a red waistcoat, breeches of black plush, 
"'and a blue coat with silver buttons and handsome silver lace. "'Costly clothes, though somewhat spoiled with the fog and being slept in. "'I am vexed, sir, about the boat,' says the captain. "'There are some pretty men gone to the bottom,' said the stranger, "'that I'd rather see on the dry land again than half a score of boats.' "'Friends of yours?' said Hoseason. "'You have none such friends in your country,' was the reply. "'They would have died for me like dogs.' "'Well, sir,' said the captain, still watching him. "'There are more men in the world than boats to put them in.' "'Aye, that's true, too,' cried the other. "'And you seem to be a gentleman of great penetration.' "'I have been in France, sir,' says the captain, "'so that it was plain he meant more by the words "'than showed upon the face of them.' "'Well, sir,' says the other, "'and so has many a pretty man, for the matter of that.' "'No doubt, sir,' says the captain, "'and fine coats.' "'Oh-ho!' says the stranger. "'Is that how the wind sets?' And he laid his hand quickly on his pistols. "'Don't be hasty,' said the captain. "'Don't do a mischief before you see the need of it. "'You've a French soldier's coat upon your back "'and a Scotch tongue in your head, to be sure. "'But so has many an honest fellow in these days, "'and I dare say the none worse of it.' "'So,' said the gentleman in the fine coat, "'are ye of the honest party?' "'Meaning, was he a Jacobite?' "'for each side in these sort of civil broils "'takes the name of honesty for its own.' "'Why, sir,' replied the captain, "'I'm a true blue Protestant, "'and I thank God for it. "'It was the first word of any religion "'I'd ever heard from him, "'but I learnt afterwards "'that he was a great churchgoer while on shore. "'But for all that,' says he, "'I can be sorry to see another man "'with his back to the wall.' "'Can you so indeed?' asked the Jacobite. "'Well, sir, to be quite plain with you, "'I'm one of those honest gentlemen "'that were in trouble about the years 45 and 46, "'and, to be still quite plain with you, "'if I got into the hands of any of the red-coated gentry, "'it's like it would go hard with me. "'Now, sir, I was for France, "'and there was a French ship cruising there to pick me up, "'but she gave us the go-by in the fog, "'just as I wish from the heart that ye had done yours. "'And the best that I can say is this, "'if you can set me ashore where I was going,' "'I have that upon me will reward you highly for your trouble.' "'In France?' says the captain. "'No, sir, that I cannot do. "'But where you come from, we might talk of that.' "'And then, unhappily, he observed me standing in my corner "'and packed me off to the galley to get supper for the gentleman. "'I lost no time, I promise you, "'and when I came back into the roundhouse, "'I found the gentleman had taken a money belt from about his waist "'and poured out a guinea or two upon the table.' The captain was looking at the guineas, and then at the belt, and then at the gentleman's face, and I thought he seemed excited. it," he cried, and I'm your man. The other swept back the guineas into the belt, and put it on again under his waistcoat. I have told you, sir, said he, that not one dolt of it belongs to me. It belongs to my chieftain. And here he touched his hat. And while I would be but a silly messenger to grudge some of it that the rest might come safe, "'I should show myself a hound indeed "'if I bought my own carcass any too dear. Thirty guineas on the seaside, "'or sixty if you set me in the lynn lock. "'Take it, if you will. "'If not, you can do your worst.' "'Aye,' said Hoseason. "'And if I give you over to the soldiers?' "'You'd be making a fool's bargain,' said the other. "'My chief, let me tell you, sir, "'is forfeited, like every honest man in Scotland.' His estate is in the hands of the man they call King George, and it is his officers that collect the rents, or try to collect them. 
"'but for the honour of Scotland, "'the poor tenant bodies take a thought "'upon their chief line in exile, "'and this money is part of that very rent "'for which King George is looking. "'Now, sir, you seem to me to be a man "'that understands things. "'Bring this money within the reach of the government, "'and how much of it will come to you?' "'Little enough, to be sure,' said Hoseason, "'and then, if they knew,' he added dryly. "'But I think, if I was to try,' "'that I could hold my tongue about it.' "'Ah, but I'll befool you there,' cried the gentleman. "'Play me false, and I'll play you cunning. "'If a hand is laid upon me, "'they shall ken what money is.' "'Well,' returned the captain, "'what must be must be. Sixty guineas and done. "'Here's my hand upon it.' "'And here's mine,' said the other. "'And thereupon the captain went out, "'rather hurriedly, I thought,' "'and left me alone in the roundhouse with the stranger. "'At that period, so soon after the forty-five, "'there were many exiled gentlemen coming back at the peril of their lives, "'either to see their friends or to collect a little money, "'and as for the highland chiefs that had been forfeited, "'it was a common matter of talk how their tenants would stint themselves to send them money, "'and their clansmen outfaced the soldiery to get it in, "'and run the gauntlet of our great navy to carry it across. "'All this I had, of course, heard tell of.' "'and now I had a man under my eyes "'whose life was forfeit on all these counts "'and upon one more, "'for he was not only a rebel and a smuggler of rents, "'but had taken service with King Louis of France. "'And as if all this were not enough, "'he had a belt full of golden guineas round his loins. "'Whatever my opinions, "'I could not look on such a man without a lively interest. "'And so, you're a Jacobite,' said I, "'as I set meat before him. "'Aye,' said he, beginning to eat, "'And you, by your long face, should be a Whig?' "'A Whig or Whiggermore was a cat name "'for those who were loyal to King George.' "'Betwixt and between,' said I, "'not to annoy him, "'for indeed I was as good a Whig "'as Mr. Campbell could make me.' "'And that's nothing,' said he. "'But I'm saying, Mr. Betwixt and Between, "'this bottle of yours is dry, "'and it's hard to find to pay sixty guineas "'and be grudged a dram upon the back of it. "'I'll go and ask for the key,' said I. "'and I stepped on deck. "'The fog was as close as ever, "'but the swell almost down. "'They had laid the brig too, "'not knowing precisely where they were, "'and the wind, what little there was of it, "'not serving well for their true course. "'Some of the hands were still hearkening for breakers, "'but the captain and the two officers "'were in the waist with their heads together. "'It struck me, I don't know why, "'that they were up to no good, "'and the first word I heard, "'as I drew softly near, "'more than confirmed me. It was Mr. Riosh, crying out as if upon a sudden thought. "'Couldn't we wile him out of the roundhouse?' "'He's better where he is,' returned Hoseason. "'He hasn't room to use his sword.' "'Well, that's true,' said Mr. Riosh. "'But he's hard to come at.' "'But,' said Hoseason, "'we can get the man in talk, one upon each side, "'and pin him by the two arms. "'Or if that'll not hold, sir, "'we can make a run by both the doors "'and get him underhand before he has time to draw.' At this hearing, I was seized with both fear and anger at these treacherous, greedy, bloody men that I sailed with. My first mind was to run away. My second was bolder. Captain, said I, the gentleman seeking a dram, and the bottle's out. Will you give me the key? They all started and turned about. Why, here's our chance to get the firearms, Riosh cried. And then to me, hark ye, David, he said, do you ken where the pistols are? "'Aye, aye,' 
put in Hoshezen. David kens. David's a good lad. You see, David, my man, yon wild Highlandman is a danger to the ship, besides being a rank foe to King George. God bless him. I had never been so bedavided since I came on board, but I said, yes, as if all I heard were quite natural. The trouble is, resumed the captain, that all our firelocks, great and little, are in the roundhouse under this man's nose, likewise the powder. Now if I or one of the officers was to go in and take them, he would fail to thinking. But a lad like you, Davy, might snap up a horn and pistol or two without remark. And if you can do it cleverly, I'll bear it in mind when it'll be good for you to have friends, and that's when we come to Carolina. Here Mr. Rios whispered him a little. Very right, sir, said the captain, and then to myself, And see here, David, your man is a belt full of gold, and I give you my word that you shall have your fingers in it. I told him I would do as he wished, though indeed I had scarce breath to speak with, and upon that he gave me the key of the spirit locker, and I began to go slowly back to the roundhouse. What was I to do? They were dogs and thieves. They had stolen me from my own country. They had killed poor Ransom. And was I to hold the candle to another murder? But then, upon the other hand, there was the fear of death very plain before me. For what could a boy and a man, if they were as brave as lions, do against a whole ship's company? I was still arguing it back and forth, and getting no great clearness, when I came into the roundhouse and saw the Jacobite eating his supper under the lamp. And at that my mind was all made up in a moment. I have no credit by it. It was by no choice of mine, but as if by compulsion, that I walked right up to the table and put my hand on his shoulder. Do you want to be killed? said I. He sprang to his feet and looked a question at me as clear as if he had spoken. Oh, cried I, they're all murderers here. It's a ship full of them. They've murdered a boy already. Now it's you on their minds. Aye, aye, said he. "'They haven't got me yet.' "'And then looking at me curiously, "'Will you stand with me?' "'That will I,' said I. "'I'm no thief, nor yet murderer. "'I'll stand by you.' "'Why then,' said he, "'what's your name?' "'David Balfour,' said I. "'And then, thinking that a man with so fine a coat "'must be like fine people, "'I added for the first time, "'of Shaw's.' "'It never occurred to him to doubt me.' for Highlanders used to see great gentlefolk in great poverty. But as he had no estate of his own, my words nettled the very childish vanity he had. "'My name is Stuart,' he said, drawing himself up. "'Alan Breck, they call me. A king's name is good enough for me, though I bear it plain and have the name of no farm midden to clap to the hind end of it. And having administered this rebuke, as though it were something of a chief importance, he turned to examine our defences.' The roundhouse was built very strong to support the breaching of the seas. Of its five apertures, only the skylight and the two doors were large enough for the passage of a man. The doors besides could be drawn close. They were of stout oak and ran in grooves and were fitted with hooks to keep them either shut or open as the need arose. The one that was already shut I secured in this fashion, but when I was proceeding to slide the other, Alan stopped me. David, said he, for I cannot bring to mind the name of your landed estate, or so will make so bold as to just call you David. That door being open is the best part of my defenses. It would be better shut, says I. Not so, David, says he. You see, I have but one face, but so long as that door is open and my face to it, the best part of my enemies will be in front of me, where I should I wish to find them. 
Then he gave me from the rack a cutlass, of which there were a few, besides the firearms, choosing it with great care, shaking his head, and saying he had never in all his life seen poorer weapons. And next he set me down to the table with a powder horn, a bag of bullets, and all the pistols, which he bade me charge. And that will be better work, let me tell you, said he, for a gentleman of decent birth than scraping plates and handing drams to a wean Terry sailors. Thereupon he stood up in the midst with his face to the door, and drawing his great sword, made a trial of the room he had to wield it in. I am a stick to the point, he said, shaking his head, and that's a pity too. It doesn't set my skills, which is all for the upper guard. And now, said he, do you keep on charging the pistols, and give heed to me. I told him I would listen closely. My chest was tight, my mouth dry, the light dark to my eyes. The thought of the numbers that were soon to leap in upon us kept my heart in a flutter, and the sea, which I heard washing round the brig, and where I thought my dead body would be cast ere morning, ran in my mind strangely. First of all, said he, how many are against us? I reckoned them up, and such was the hurry of my mind I had to cast the numbers twice. Fifteen, said I. Alan whistled. Well, said he, that can't be cured. And now follow me. It is my part to keep this door, where I look for the main battle. In that ye have no hand, and mind, and do not fire to this side unless they get me down, for I would rather have ten foes in front of me than one friend like you cracking pistols at my back. I told him, indeed, I was no great shot. And that's very bravely said, he cried, in a great admiration of my candor. There's many a pretty gentleman that would not dare to say it. But then, sir, said I, there is the door behind you, which they may perhaps break in. Aye, said he, and that is a part of your work. No sooner the pistol is charged than you must climb up into yon bed where you're handy at the window, and if they lift a hand against the door, you're to shoot. But that's not all. Let's make a bit of a soldier of you, David. What else have you to guard? There's the skylight, said I. But indeed, Mr. Stewart, I would need to have eyes upon both sides to keep the two of them, for when my face is at the one, my back is to the other. And that's very true, said Alan. But have ye no ears to your head? To be sure, cried I. I would hear the bursting of the glass. Ye do have some rudiments of sense, said Alan, grimly, but with a smile. Join us next week Sunday night for chapters 10 through 12 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. And if you're enjoying our story, please do stop and send us a review. Reviews are extremely important to us, especially from you Apple listeners. It takes a few minutes, but it's so much appreciated here. And also consider us for Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network, where we now have hundreds of ad-free shows from our archives, and we send early bird episodes to our two top-level supporters. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next Sunday night. See you then. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.